Welcome to the PMPA Speaking of Precision podcast, featuring your host, Miles Free. Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA Speaking of Precision, Monday with Miles. Johnny Freeze from Peterson Tool GWS has joined me today, and we're going to discuss what the heck is it that a tool design engineer really does. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you, Miles. Glad to be here. Johnny, I've got some questions. I, I, I think it's important for me to qualify who you are to our listeners so they get a sense of who this person is that's talking to them. So if, if you're okay with that, I've got four questions I'd like to ask you. And, and if you've got a soft drink or a beverage, put it down. We don't want you to spit into the microphone, right? <laughs> So, um, Johnny, question number one, have you ever paid someone for a brake job on your personal vehicle? No, I have not. I'm not surprised. Number two, Johnny, have you ever called a plumber to fix something in your house? Miles, I have not. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? Johnny, have you ever, now, even Joe's laughing at this one. He, he can read it in my eyes. Have you ever taken your lawn equipment to a shop to be repaired? <laughs> no, sorry. <I> <laughs> okay, so Johnny, uh, your superpower is you can handle any, any home, home crisis, any, any crisis. When would you hire an outside expert? When have you hired an outside expert? Well, we had a we had we did have a tree basically grow a root of a tree grow through our water line. I could not fix that one, so I had to reach out to the to uh, Murfreesboro Waterworks to come fix that one for me. So you actually had to bring in public engineers and excavating equipment. So, folks, that's really the kind of mindset that we're talking with when we talk about design engineers and in the machining, machining uh, industry, um, everything is part of their domain. So Johnny, what was the first machine that you actually got to spend some time on? What did, where did you kind of get your hands started on the craft before you went to school or before you got into doing the designing and stuff yeah uh basically trade school in high school um we were we were able to do you know all the stuff you're talking about pretty much you know plumbing masonry work machine work with just standard just as old standard brown uh bridge uh bridge i think it's a bridge and stratton lathe um and the guy would just pretty much just turn us loose with a piece of of steel and say hey here make this shape you know make these couple diameters um you know, welding, automotive work, you know, that was really the reason I went to school. If it wasn't for agriculture and mechanical shop, I probably wouldn't even have finished high school, to be honest with you. I hated everything else, but I loved going to them two classes because it involved hands-on learning where I could actually see my, you know, my end results when I was done with it at the end of the day. There, there is that, that tangible feedback, and I think that's you know, when I talk with anybody in, in our industry, um, that, that tangible, I can see parts, I can see baskets, I can, I can see shipments, I can see the boxes on, stacked up on the skid. 
knowing that's going into Thunderbirds or Camaros or Teslas or whatever. Um, that, that really is rewarding. So um, your shop teacher, what, what was the best lesson you took away from your shop teacher? That would have, it's, it's Bill Bowman. And what's funny is we had our, our show car at the NASCAR race here in, at the Super Speedway in Nashville two weeks ago. And Bill Bowman actually come by, which was my shop teacher. And he was just in awe of where I ended up because the, the expectations for me was quite low during the high school days, obviously. Um, but the, the biggest thing he taught me was pretty much work ethic. To be honest with you, I worked for him on his farm. He was a farmer as well as our as our mechanical shop teacher, um, and I learned a good worth at work ethic through him. And and you know, the thought that nothing's impossible. You can achieve anything if you just want to do it. And and that was my biggest problem was being stubborn. I didn't really want to learn anything because I thought I already knew enough to just go to work and make money. And that was my mentality. And, and so he kind of released that a little bit and said, hey, you, you know, you've got to quit being so stubborn because you, you've got talent. You just got to understand how to use it. And, and that really helped me a bunch. That's interesting. So this, this man who changed your life, teaching was his side hustle. <laughs> yes, sir. What's your side hustle? Um, I have a couple of different ones. Um, I like to... I like to dabble in making my own spirits, if you will. Um, and, and then, I, you know, I like doing recreational boating stuff. But but to be honest, me and my buddies have our best fun working on stuff, as ironic as that is. We'll go to the garage. We've got an air conditioner in there for the summer, you know, heater for the winter. And we just tear stuff apart and rebuild it or fix it. Um, it seems like you never run out of stuff to work on. Uh, that's an interesting story. So when I managed a steel mill in Georgia, Cartersville, Georgia, uh, I hired a, a young man, ex-Marine, um, to be my quality assurance manager on the shop floor. And I had a really difficult time communicating with, with, with him. And finally I said, you know, I've got to figure this out because it takes two to communicate. And so I asked him a couple questions and it, it became apparent to me that I was using words that indicated, did he see, did he see, did he, did he hear? And when he would use words to describe, it was always, he could feel it. He would put his arms around it. He could, he could touch it, he could smell. So he was in this world of touching and doing and I'm in my head in this, I saw it, I heard it. And so there was like no overlap between our senses. And once I figured out that he couldn't see what I was saying, but he could get his arms around it, we, well, we were the first non-integrated steel mill to get Ford Q1, so it, it worked. <laughs> but this idea of doing stuff, I mean, you just naturally do stuff. It's what you do, right? That's what we do. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it keeps, you know, it keeps the mind and the body as one. Um, in my opinion, you know, like the other day, the ironically enough, the, the pool pump went out on the pool. And so what was you to do? You know, everybody else would have panicked and waited three or four days to try to get someone to come and look at it, charge them a fortune. I found it happened to be Amazon prime day. I found a pump for, <laughs> 
300 bucks, a pump and a motor. And I bought it and I had it put in the next day. Um, and, and so that's what I enjoy doing. And I'm glad I learned that stuff. And, you know, and that goes back to my family too. You know, my dad and my uncles, they were all mechanics and, and tradesmen. You know, my dad built airplanes for 48 years. He, he put the skins on the wings of Cessnas for 48 years. So you can imagine that he was quite technical in nature, organized in nature and all that good stuff. So I imagine he could tell some riveting stories. He's got some pretty good stories. Absolutely. A little pun there. Poor pun. Maybe that'll survive the <laughs> editing process. So um, this idea of self-sufficiency, you see that in the machinists you work with in our in our shops as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes it can, you know, it, it's always a positive thing, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it can be a negative thing because they're like, well, what if I just modified it this way? Or what if I just done this? And, and so sometimes a more of a hands-off approach when it comes to, you know, setup and tooling of machines could be uh, more acceptable to kind of let the experts do their thing, if you will. But yes, it's a, it's a good problem to have. They're, everybody wants to do their own thing and fix their own problems and, you know, whatever they need to do. So you really didn't like the academic side of school. You liked the, the classes, the hands-on classes. And so you decided to go to Tennessee Technological University. How'd you make that decision when it's your hands-on guy? It was tough. Um, I wanted just to go, like I said, to work and make money um, because I'd been working since I was like 12 years old in the first place. So, you know, I was single parent family in, in the hills of, of Cannon County, Woodbury, Tennessee, if you will. I didn't have a lot of resources. So if I wanted something, I had to go to work and make money to buy it. Um, and that was my dad's mentality. Um, so I'd worked for so long that I didn't want to go back to school. I wanted just to go work. Um, and, and I think it was part of my, you know, my dad and Bill Bowman and stuff. But for some reason, I just decided my dad's like, well, you're going to go get a mechanical drafting degree. And, and that's just where it's at. And I says, you know, yeah, I can do that. I didn't mind drawing. I actually love drawing as, uh, as well. You know, all kinds of pictures, whether it be 3D pictures or whether it be of, of cars or cartoons. But I've always been a good drawer. And I was always pretty decent at math. And I loved to work with my hands. So mechanical drafting seemed to be a pretty good fit. Um, it didn't take me but six months in that class and I was already co-oping at Worthington Precision Metals in Franklin, Tennessee. So I really only went to college for six months. I spent the, the, the rest of that, the other 18 months actually at work doing co-op work. Wow. So I got to Worthington. The first machine I worked on there was Rismatics, which is basically a dumbed down version of a Hydromat. It, it, it's pretty much just in and out spindles. It's not quite as fancy as the Hydromats are of today. Um, then, then Davenports and, and Acme's, and then I got into the, the centerless grinding, through feed grinding, in feed grinding. Um, then I kind of got into the CNC side of the business. Um, and then before you know it, I was buying, I was doing complete manufacturing quotes um, where I'm taking a product that someone wants made, say they want a hundred thousand pieces. And putting, you know, putting all the details together to get the quote ready for that product. 
Um, then when we won that product, I would get the tooling packages together, working with, with the tooling companies like Peterson. Um, and I was got frustrated because they couldn't seem to, to understand my ideas the first time around, and I was having to change drawings. So I just started drawing my own tools. Um, and I sent them in to be quoted. And when John seen that, when the Peterson seen that, they said, we've got to hire this kid. Um, and, and that's kind of where I started my career here in 2003. So I've been here, you know, going on 20 years. So that would have been like five years after school, right? Right. Yeah. I worked, uh, roughly, I was, uh, one year behind because of my lack of wanting to attend school. (laughs) How's your (laughs) attendance at work? My attendance at work's good, actually. I don't mind going to work uh, because it pays. I hated going to school because it didn't pay, and they were teaching me stuff that I didn't think was really relevant, although today I actually use quite a bit of it. Um, But, yeah, so I didn't have a very good attendance record at all. Plus, I was driving at 13 years old, Miles, so I had hardship license. I was on the basketball team. You know, I I had too much going on to worry about school. and, and so when I got the freedom to drive, I just said, yeah, I'll go to school today if I want to or not. I would typically show up for the classes I liked and then skip out the ones I didn't like. Um, but luckily, I had a lot of people that kept on me and forced me to, to make it through. And how did they how were they effective at doing that? You, you admitted earlier you were a stubborn guy. And, you know, we've all we all, you know, can get our butts up in the air about something how were they able to be effective and get you to to apply yourself anyhow how, how did that work you know that's a really good question i my dad went to school it's like a small town so my dad went to school with our principal mr pitts so basically my dad knew him very well and anytime i wouldn't show up to school they would just give my dad a personal phone call um, and so then he would try to get a hold of me. You know, cell phones had just kind of come around. They wasn't quite up to snuff yet, but there was enough to where they could get a hold of him. Um, and he would uh, let me know that afternoon that, it, that he knew the whole what I'd done and I wasn't at school and that the gig was up. Um, and I would just kind of say, ah, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And then he would just kind of choke me down with, with money and resources and say, yeah, well, I can do this, this and this. Um, and I, so I would just, okay, I guess I better go back to school. Um, so I'd go back to school and, and kind of do okay for a couple of weeks and then fall right back into the same routines. Um, I think the best thing that ever happened to me is, is my senior year, it got so bad. They put me for my senior year. They put me in a, a separate school, basically, um, an alternative school is what they called it. Um, and it was at the board of education, um, in Cannon County in the basement, and there was like 10 of us. Um, and there was this guy named Coach Logan, which was a real hard ass. Um, he would jerk you up and just pop you right in the nose, no questions asked. And he had to write pretty much. All the parents signed him the rights to do what he needed to do. That's back when corporate punishment was okay. And um, so he kept us in line, and that's what actually got me through. He would not let us give up. If we didn't show up, he would come get us. Um you know, if we didn't want to perform, he would straighten us out and get us performing. So really, that that guy was a was a blessing in disguise. What was your inmate number there at the Board of Education? Yeah, well, it was just JF. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty weird. I must say, uh, it was like being in jail. Um, 
but it was for our better. You know, it was better off for us. And and I, that's why I'm grateful I got to grow up in a small town. If that would have been Davidson County, you know, here in Nashville, something like that, they'd have just thrown you to the side and moved on about their business. Um, so so I, I think a lot of people seen that I, I had some hidden talents when it comes to just machining and just – I was a tinkerer. I always took stuff apart. Even from when I was a kid, I would take stuff apart and put stuff back together. Even if it wasn't broken, I'm going to take it apart because I wanted to know how it worked. I've always been fascinated on how stuff works. And it doesn't matter what it is. I want to know how it works, how it comes apart, how's it go, how's it go back together, um, and can I take it apart and put it back together and it work the same? Well, I, I can tell you that that's – I can confirm that that's absolutely true because some of the content that you share – on LinkedIn is all about how it works. It's about, you know, really the joys of manufacturing. And, and um, so that, that part of your personality is still intact, whether Coach Logan's enforcing it or not. You said something earlier that I thought was interesting that, you know, all that academic stuff, that you didn't see it, that it was relevant. And now as a tooling and design engineer and, and somebody that's you know, helping us present technical conferences across the country, um, you you came to understand that it was relevant. What would you tell to people today who say, "Oh, I'm not going to need this algebra. I'm not going to need this geometry trig. I when am I going to use?" How would you how would you convince Johnny Freeze at age 14 that he he should pay a little more attention to this and not need to go see <laughs> Coach Logan? Yeah, I would, um, you know, I've got a newborn, obviously, four months old. And so, you know, I'm facing this. I'm sure I'm going to face the same challenges. He's definitely, his mom definitely says that he's cut from the same mold I come from. He's got a little bit of an attitude already. Um, stubborn. I'm shocked. Yeah, I know. Shocked. I know. So I, I'm probably going to set him down and say, you know, you don't know what you know what God has in store for you moving forward. You don't know what you're going to be doing for a living um, year over year over year. So you should build your skill set with every opportunity you got. So that way you're prepared and you don't have such a hard road ahead of you when you do get a great opportunity. Um, you know, when I ended up at, at Worthington, you know, I, I knew I knew my math and I knew um, how to draw and that kind of stuff, but I didn't have very good written communication skills and I, you know, I didn't have very good spelling skills um, and, you know, I still don't have that good of speeching skills, even though I talk more than I probably should. Um, but so I had to help develop a lot of that stuff, you know, um, in the field, on the job, if you will. So it had been a lot easier for me to develop that skill set in the classrooms where I was supposed to be. I understand that. So you uh, got, you know, hired by Peterson Tool. They, they saw that you had this pragmatic knowledge about, you know, how to make the tools do what you wanted them to on, on, the, on, the, on the material and to make the parts. Um, how, does, how, do, how did you organize? Um, I mean, I, I have to think, you have to know about tooling materials. You have to know about workpiece materials. You have to know about attack angles, rake angles. You have to know about clearance angles. So there's a lot of stuff that you didn't get in that CAD class, in that design class. And um, 
I mean, I understand learning from experience, right? I mean, right. That's that that ultimately that is how we learn, but um, it, it, you ha seem to have such a wide domain of responsibility in in your work at Peterson. Um, how how did how do you organize this stuff in your head? What's your hierarchy of, you know, when when a print comes in, what's what's the what's the process in your in your head? Is it too big, too long, too, you know, what hard? What, what, how do you approach a problem? Oh yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, it's come so natural now that that you don't think about all the processes. But when I I but knew, there is a process. There is a process. Yeah, I knew quite a bit at Worthington, but when I came here and I started designing and I hung, you know, Mark Charlton and Fred Chaff, and they helped me a bunch with, and a lot of that's experience. Mark, uh, Fred's more experienced. Mark was more kind of, book, you know, experienced as well, but he did more of the book calculation stuff, um, wanted it right on the money. But we, we look at, you know, part to diameter ratios, um, Obviously, we know what certain materials need to, as far as geometries, top rakes, clearance angles, that kind of stuff. So we basically start with the, the, the easiest part, which is diameter to length ratio. Can this be accomplished? How many tools does it need to have? Then you look at tolerance and part finish. The materials, one of the last things we kind of look at, to be honest, because you've got to make this part. They've got to make the part. They've got to make chips, right? Um, so we've got to figure out how to do that. So we look at the, the features, the you know, the finishes, the tolerances, the, the diameters to length ratios, and kind of say, okay, we can do this with three tools and a shave tool, um, or we just need a couple of form tools because the tolerance is open enough. Um, then we we're, we're mindful of the machine we're going to be on because you know that that makes a difference. You know, not all machines are equal, but they all use our tooling just as well, right? Um, so, you know, you know whether you're in an up cut or a down cut positions to help the customer kind of lay it out to, to manage the chips in the machine if you can. Um, that, that's kind of where we go when we, when we start with one of these projects. And, and if they're real difficult, they'll end up being some trial and error involved, which is basically my favorite part of the job. I love a challenge, something that's not working. How many ideas can I throw at it until I win? Um, or we win, if you will, and and some and most of the times we we come out successful, and and you might take four test tools back with you, and, and the first one you put in might be the success tool. Um, so it, it, it there is some trial and error sometimes. That's that's interesting. So uh, d there's so much so much there. I, I was fascinated by your up cut or down cut, and I'm like. Well, it's kind of like in the steel industry, in the blast furnace, it's it's gravity powered, right? Right. <laughs> the the heavy iron comes down, down the runner, and the slag is lighter, and it we skim it off. Um, but you're talking about upcut and downcut, uh, chip evacuation and, and clearance is kind of, kind of an important thing too. Yeah, absolutely. It's um the the more if you put your roughing tools in your upcut positions. You know, you're you're going to kind of stack chips on top of tools. If you can put your finishers in the upcut where they're removing less material, um, then you have less stacking of chips on top of the tool. So you, you want to well less chips to stack. That, that's right. Um, and so yeah, less math. That's something to keep in mind. Sometimes the, the part geometries and the layout won't allow you to successfully do that all the way around the machine. 
but it should definitely be in the forefront of your thinking when you look at a process. That, that's a great, you know, de facto policy. What other policies do you have for how to tool up a job? Well, you know, obviously cycle time is important. You know, in some companies, I think they get ahead of themselves and they, they look for, for cycle time over quality. I think quality should be first. Um, so once you get a nice quality sound setup and you're getting nice parts, then, then why can't you go faster, right? So, um, you know, Mark's done a lot of cam designing and I, I've dabbled in that a little bit, not enough to be an expert at it. But we do a lot of double rise cams, which Mark actually did a session at the PMPA on double rise cams, one of the tech yep. conferences. Um, but we, we use that trick to, to make the part just as fast as physically possible. Um, so that's, that's another trick we, we'll use and look at is, you know, do you need carbide drills? How fast can we do this? How many features can we do in one tool? Because the more you can do in one tool, the, the, the more that's locked in to the tool maker, not to your machinist or to your machine. Right, and the, the savings on verifying, validating. I mean, if you've got statistical control on one feature on that tool, you only have to measure that one, right? That's right. You yep. find the one that's vulnerable, the most vulnerable to edge wear or, or abrasion or whatever, and then you track that, and the others just, they, they stay in order. They stay in order. A lot of companies, it depends on how their ISO is set up, but most of the time they'll take our tool and do a one piece inspection of the batch of tools coming in and say that's good enough to validate our quality department on running this product and they'll literally just check one diameter of four diameters and say that's all we got to check because we've checked the tool the tool's good so that means the parts are good um so let's rock and roll and it's and they've been really successful doing that and and that's really a testament to your manufacturing processes there at Peterson because don't you batch your tools? I mean, you'll you'll fill up a magazine to get these geometries, right? Yeah, we'll, right? We'll, we'll you're not doing that. one at a time. You may have, I don't know, 10, 5, 30. Yeah, we have 10, up to eight, maybe even 100, you know, a couple of different magazines. But yes, wow. uh, our, our we try to produce batches of tools as close as possible. Um, to each other, if not perfect to each other. That way you can kind of rely on the tooling to know that this date lot is good and we can trust this date lot of inserts. Um, and, and we don't have to be so worried about individual diameters varying, undercuts in the tools, giving you steps and stuff on your part or just terrible corner breaks. Um, we really pride on making a really quality product like that for our end users. And, and a lot of that goes back to just the, the persons that we are, right? You know, we're, we're precision people. We don't, we don't look at the world through a 10,000th plus or minus 10,000th eye loop. You know, we're staring at it with the plus or minus five tenths. And what's funny is I see that in our, in our personal lives every day, you know, it, it kind of blends into it, if you will. You know, you mow the grass and if, if it's not all perfectly level, we're going to go back and mow it again, just because, something was up. Yeah, yeah I, I, I sure understand that. That idea of a date lot, that, that resonates with me. So in steel, we called it a heat lot. Right. And so if the steel worked for ABC company on their screw machine, but it wouldn't work on XYZ's machines, 
Well, XYZ says, well, it must be the steel. Well, <laughs> ABC's taken three truckloads of it. It runs just fine. And they've got a cutoff in the center, you know, it gets through the whole thing. And they've got OD tools and drills. So uh, it gives you confidence to that it's, let's look at the operation instead of just blaming the material. So um, that's really an interesting idea about uh, tracking to maintain identity of your your tools by date lot, as you said, production lot, uh, so that you can have that confidence. Um, one of the surprising things I learned that I was able to visit Boeing's factory of the future, and I came back actually quite quite frightened because the way the factory of the future was set up, if you didn't have the electronic validation, the credentials, if you were, for every operation, I mean, every operation, all the way back to the purchase order, all the way back probably to the original mines because of conflict minerals and stuff. I mean, you couldn't mic it into compliance. You couldn't CMM a part into compliance. If you lost any part of that chain of, of evidence, uh, the part was not good for flight. Mm. And um, so that was, it was interesting to me to see that you have this date lot concept, just like I had heat lot and Boeing's tracking everything like it's DNA. Uh, so I have one more question before I'd like to ask you some things about what's going on at, at Peterson. Peterson's been a, a member of PMPA for, well, for a long time. Uh, what was it, 1997, I think they started. Uh, 99. 99, that's right. Yeah, I graduated that's, high school. You graduated from high school. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you started there in 03, which is when I started the <laughs> PMPA. Right. So it's, it's uh, congratulations. It's, yeah. been, it's been a good time. So tell me about mistakes that you've made. The biggest mistake, the, the mistake you thought, oh, my God, this is it. I'm not going to, you know. What's the most unrecoverable mistake you made? How did you recover? And. What did you learn from it? Uh, uh, Work-related? Well, yeah, probably. You make your own hooch, so, so I don't need to know about those mistakes. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I haven't came across too many big put-your-foot-in-your-mouth moments, to be honest, Miles. I've been blessed with that. I'd say the biggest mistake, and it's really not that big of a mistake, that I probably made was I did a performance guarantee with a customer to break chips in aluminum. And I think that's probably all I got to say about that, right? <laughs> yeah, to everybody here that's machined aluminum, they, they were uh, flying pretty close to the sun there, mister. You're not kidding. I sold them a whole setup, too. You know, thrift forms, thrift shaves, you know. Uh, about ten grand worth of stuff I had to bring back and politely ask them to put what we could back in inventory to, to, to maybe use for somebody else. But most of it was custom, and so we just had to throw it away and lick our wounds. Mark couldn't uh, notch the cam or give you some uh, no, special Mark, bumps to help? Um, I think I jumped out there a little, uh, you know, with my chest stuck out. I think Mark says, yeah, we'll yeah. teach this young man a lesson. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, now you know about breaking chips on aluminum. Do you have any advice for those of us who have to try that? 
What, I, what's your best advice for breaking chips on aluminum? I would advise to guide the chip where you want it to go and get <laughs> breaking it. Um, there you go. Yeah, chip you know, management. There's too many ways to guide it. You know, use coolant, use, you know, pieces of rubber to cover your stuff you're tooling up with. Create, for lack of better term, create a gutter system for the chips to direct them where you want them to go. Wow, that's a great uh, a great approach. Yeah, yeah. Put put the chips on their own little freeway there. That's right. So when when you were thirteen, driving yourself to school on a hardship license, did you ever think you'd be the uh, the lead representative for uh, your company as it got acquired uh, with the acquiring company and representative to a national international trade association I, I did not i figured i would probably be a mechanic or something i had done a lot at that at that that time i'd done you know i've broken walking horses i've made rocking chairs um you know i did you know hauled hay did a lot of tractor driving work is in you know uh plowing fields and stuff so i i'd done quite a bit and I thought probably was going to end up being a mechanic because that kind of resonated with me um, to because I was able to take stuff apart, put stuff back together. So I, I was on the road to being a mechanic. It was just a matter of how quick could I get that job. So, yeah, it was, it was a total blindside. Yeah. So PMPA members know you. You're, uh, you've been active on our tech program committee. You introduced me at this last tech conference on my session on chips. Um, you know, you've, you've, been active on committees. Your your company uh, recently was acquired by GWS Tool. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and your new role on that? Yeah. Um, so the the Peterson family was realizing that they really had nobody to take the company over that's in the Peterson family, um, and so they've kind of been looking for five years or so for a good fit, and they they and. They found GWS kind of found us and we found them around the same time, if you will. They were a small family owned company, JW, GW Slits, which, Slots, which was down in Florida. Um, and so they kind of still had the personal family business run side of that, you know, of that aspect. Um, and so it was a really good fit for us. It, it, they got 13 companies they own, 12 in the United States, one in Canada including us um and it's a, it's a really good fit they're trying to have the ultimate tooling solutions group if you will to where you can get any product you need from one company if you choose to do so so it, it was a really good for us i think it'll help the peterson name the people the 85 people here in nashville tennessee um keep feeding the food on the table for their families um and, and it keeps everybody moving forward so it's a it's a really good purchase well, I think it's it's a good fit. So I, I know your company for custom tools uh, and working tools and tools for automatics. And GWS, I, I think of primarily, in, I mean, instantly milling tools, right? Yeah, um, lots of, you know, custom end mills, you know, step drills, thread mills, keyway cutters, you know, that kind of stuff, whirling yeah. inserts for threads. You know, that's kind yeah. of what their mainstay is. So, so this merger, this merger happens, and they asked the kid that was in Coach Logan's prison to be the rep for both companies. How, 
how does how do you explain that? You know, I gotta I gotta put some of that credit on you guys at the PMPA for that. Um, you, you know, starting back, you know, obviously Carly and yourself, and um, you know, even Monty way back when. Um, you know, I, I had opportunities to to meet people. And I fit in with a lot of people that I met and I, you know, y'all gave me more and more opportunities to do stuff. And Peterson supported that and paid for me to go to these tech meetings and, and to be on the committees and all this stuff. Um, and so I just grew a network inside the PMPA. And then when, when GWS took over, they realized that I'd actually built a much bigger network than they had, even with all the companies and the, and, you know, and, and the budgets and all that that they had. And they says, well, you should just stay doing the PMPA stuff yourself. You, you know, you just keep that going because you've done a pretty good job with it and actually better than, than we have. So um, it, it's really humbling in a way and exciting, um, but it's also warranted because I really didn't want to give it give it away. Right. 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 So I I tell everybody that when they say, well, why should I send my people to PMPA? I. I think of it as a leadership lab. I mean, I came in, sure, I came in as a plant metallurgist and, you know, but I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know squat about machines. And uh, and so I'd go to the tech conference, I'd sit there at a job planning and layout session and they'd look at me and you don't even know which way the, the bars go in. Right, right? yeah. But uh, now I'm like, I'm, I'm able to uh, share knowledge that uh, is helpful and raises all boats. So uh, congratulations to you for, and, and, and thanks for the, uh, the mention of PMPA Leadership Lab uh, through your participation. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell people about uh, the career, what's new, what's coming, what, uh, what advice you have for people? Or, what do you, what do you what would you like to wrap this up with, Johnny? Well, I would just tell everybody to to cool their jets and hang in there, Miles. Right? It's a it's a the the economy's not terrible, but the the uh, the people driving the boat are running us across some pretty rough rapids. But we're going to come out of it on the other side. I'd say hang in there, uh, meet as many people as you can, network with people. Um, you can't never have too many friends if you want to say um and that, that's part of what the pmpa did for me was you know i met guys that i talked to on a daily basis whether it be work or not but when i really need something you know i've got so many contacts that i can just about get any answer that i'm looking for um wow. and that's what the pmpa gives you i got you know i got guys that run machines i got guys that build machines you know i got guys that do material you know and it's, and, you know, so they're all, we're all buddies, you know, and that's just relationships we've built with all these meetings and with the, in the PMPA itself. And, and, and it's all resources if you just want to stay in touch with them. But, but I would tell everybody just to, to hang in, network, um, learn as much as you can, and, and, and we'll come out the other side smarter and brighter than we are today. Well, you've, you've certainly... You've certainly shared uh, a story of uh, from hardship to uh, real industry success and leadership, and want to want to thank you for for sharing that. 
And uh, I guess I'll add uh, and have a special gutter for your aluminum chips. And don't forget to rough upside down. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up today's podcast and interview with Johnny Freeze of Peterson Tool GWS Tool Group. Thank you for joining us. For additional information, please visit pmpa.org, where you can also search for articles, webinars, podcasts, and other resources. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. You don't want to miss one, especially one like this. And if you aren't already taking advantage of PMPA membership, be sure to check out pmpa.org to see all we have to offer. And why is a PMPA membership important, Johnny? Because, because we, we are, are better, better together. together. Don't forget to join us next Monday on Speaking of Precision, Monday with Miles.